If you want to feel hopeful about the future, just ask children what kind of world they would like to see. Imagine a future where there's no plastic in the ocean. What if cars could run on the energy from the plants? Their ideas are bold and fearless. Imagine if clothes had wings and could replace cars. What if the wind was made out of candy floss? Their imagination knows no bounds. Imagine if diamonds fall from the sky. What if there were giant flowers that could save the bees? What if golden apples could grow out of trees? I'm Natty Kasambala, and this is Super Futures What If, where I'll be tapping into that sense of wonder, exploring what it's like to dream bigger for what lies ahead. In this series, I'll be speaking with people who are tackling some of our greatest challenges in the kinds of ways that only children could have imagined. From the food we eat and the clothes we wear to dealing with ocean plastic, we'll be asking bold questions about the future and using the very best of our imaginations to answer them. More and more, the animal products we consume are being linked to their extreme effects on our environment. And with many great minds now asking how we can best respond to this issue, there has been a space race-like wave of innovation to find the next great meat alternative. One of the frontrunners in said race is Redefine Meat, a company founded by Eshkhal Ben Shitritz. Redefine Meat is a company of meat lovers, and we are building a meat company that is creating tasty meat products using technology instead of using animals. But Redefine Meat has a particularly interesting way of creating its products. We take plant-based ingredients and create what we refer to as muscle, fat and blood, combining them into a complex matrix using a process that many call 3D printing to construct the product layer by layer, but we refer to it more professionally as additive manufacturing. So in this episode, we're going to be exploring the all-important question. What if we could print our food? I guess let's start where it all began, childhood, of course. Uh, I wanted to hear a bit more about your background and like what it was like growing up. I grew up in something that is called a kibbutz. It's a communal lifestyle, usually relating to farming. Uh, this is basically how much of Israel started. I lived in a small kibbutz called Tzora, outside of Jerusalem, where we had a lot of free fields, but mostly what we were known for then is the dairy farm. And my mother actually worked in the dairy farm and at some point of time also managed it. And my grandfather also worked in the dairy farm and he was blind. Uh, so imagine having somebody who's blind uh, leading the cows to be in milk. Uh, and from the age of four, I will join him. And it was very nice because uh, he didn't see anything so I could help him. And that my earliest memories is me with my grandma, grandfather or mother with a lot of cows around and imagining being a tiny kid looking up to these magical creatures with your grandfather. It's, it's really something that not a lot of kids experience. And I feel I, I had the privilege of, of living this lifestyle not so long ago. Yeah, it feels very of a different time almost, but it's beautiful that you were able to have that appreciation of nature so early on. 
And you've also talked about finding a love of cooking at a young age as well. Could you tell me a bit more about how all of that kind of started? The, the other side of my family actually comes from a heritage of cooking and, and where men cook. So my great-grandfather had a restaurant in Morocco and he taught my grandfather how to cook. And my grandfather taught my father and my father taught me how to cook. And from a very young age, when I was eight, I started to read cookbooks mostly around meat. We had a lot of these old school books of how to cook a steak or how to select the right cut of meat. And I was fascinated by the books. And then I would tell my father, let's go and shop for meat. And I remember the first big meal uh, that I made was when I was nine for my parents' uh, wedding anniversary. And I was the chef. My sisters were the waitresses. And we all cooked a fancy fine dining meal just from recipes we read in a cookbook. Probably it was awful, but my parents uh, really liked the gesture. And ever since then, I, I was always cooking. That was my hobby, obsession. And 90% of the obsession was meat, cooking meat, grilling meat, finding the best steaks, the best cuts of meat, the best butchers, traveling around the world to have great meat and to cook by myself. Uh, and most people that know me know me as, as somebody who cooks, cooks for family, cooks for friends, cooks for neighbors, um, and, and I love cooking. It's one of the things that I do to, to meditate. And what are some of the things that you like experimenting most with when it came to food? From a very young age, I had the obsession of cooking the perfect steak. I always felt that eating a great steak in a restaurant uh, is random. But if you find the right uh, relationship with the right butcher and know the cuts and perfect your grilling on uh, open fire, uh, then you can achieve a steak that, that no money can buy. And I spent a lot of time really experimenting to a level that was almost scientific to find ways that are uh, counterintuitive to create a great steak. And also the perfect steak for me. Uh, and usually when I did it, it was just for me. The experiment with the steak ended with me eating alone a steak and then replicating it for my father and grandfather. It definitely is a science, I think. And also that idea that, is there a perfect steak or is it a perfect steak for an individual, I think is really, really interesting. You also spent time working at your uncle's restaurant. What are some of the things that you picked up from that kind of new challenge? Uh, okay, so actually when I was 12, I had another amazing opportunity because my uncle had a restaurant in Tel Aviv that was a sophisticated fine dining French restaurant. And for many different reasons, my parents allowed me as a young kid from Jerusalem to travel during the weekend to Tel Aviv by bus and spend the weekend working in a restaurant with, with adults, uh, eating with them, drinking wine with them. You know, I know it sounds a little bit strange, uh, and the understanding of the professional kitchen and what you can achieve there versus what you can do at home uh, by learning principles that you don't learn in a cookbook. Uh, for example, making stocks. We started by making stocks for everything and using stocks for everything, sharpening the knives, using shallots, finding really the combination of the dish and how it's presented uh, and building a menu were incredible things. And, and people that work in professional restaurants, they have some tricks that when you, you go to their home and you, you eat, you know there is something special, especially regarding flavor, depth of flavor, 
complexities of, of dishes without making it really complex or without working really, really hard. And also I learned that I don't want to have this as a profession, but rather to keep it as a hobby for the long term. That was going to be my, I guess, my next question, which is that after all of that experience, you kind of chose to like pursue a different path professionally, which I think is kind of great because there is that whole conversation around, you know, like when you make your hobby or career, do you fall out of love with it in a, in a sense? So tell us a bit more about what you ended up kind of setting your sights on and what you went on to study after that. You know, a lot of a lot of the things in life are actually random and they're not by choice. And I, I thought I'm going to be a chef and I had this romantic idea that I'm going to be a chef, but every chef I worked with told me, you need to keep it as a hobby and not as a profession. And for many random reasons, I don't have any any plan behind it. I went to study law. I thought it would be extremely interesting, and it was extremely interesting. Uh, but I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer. And I ended up working a year and a half as a lawyer and then joining again by accident a tech company, uh, which I thought would be a great experience of working in an international company. And I wanted to work and meet people from many different countries I didn't travel uh, as a kid uh, growing up uh, until I was something like 26. I traveled twice outside of Israel. And in my first year working with HP, I traveled to almost 30 countries, uh, literally every week. Uh, And I thought it would be an experience. I I love to experiment. I love to meet new people. And also then eat food around the world, especially meat in many countries. I, I was drawn to this part of the job as well. That's amazing. And... Moving on to, I guess, your relationship with me and how we came to be where we are today, having this conversation. What are some of the things that you learn about me, I guess, through your travels and through your life that you are most fascinated by? There, there are two parts of my understanding of meat. Uh, while eating meat and after stopping eating meat. Uh, so first, meat is a very, very diverse food product. Some people think that you can simplify meat to, to a single product. But even within a certain type of meat, like beef, which is my favorite, and a certain kind of cut, which for me is the skirt steak, in each country around the world, there is a different breed, growing styles, butchering styles, cooking styles, that creates probably an unlimited amount of different products in the same cut of meat. And when you go to things like ribeye, or when you go to tenderloin, what some people call filet, you can really understand how a market, how a product evolved through a million years of evolution and 10,000 of years of culinary uh, traditions. And I really try to have a fillet steak in Japan and a fillet steak in the USA and to try to understand what are the differences while I was eating meat. And then you said the second part is after you stopped eating meat, kind of what led you to give up this thing that you clearly have like such a deep understanding and like passion for? Okay, I, I always feel I have a need to apologize because my, my change in life, a lot of people make dramatic changes in their life. My most dramatic change is that I stopped eating meat, which is actually, you know, it's a big sacrifice for me, but for most people it wouldn't sound so dramatic. And, and unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, At one moment, I just couldn't eat meat anymore. And when I was eating meat, I started having doubts. I started having difficulties, but nobody would have imagined, including myself, but definitely the people close to me, that it will ever make me not eat meat again. 
Uh, but, but then when I became a father and, and I had my first uh, son, it really became impossible to continue doing what I was doing. I tried for a little bit with all of the emotional challenges and guilt and even questions that I asked myself, what is it that I'm eating now? I tried, but, but at one day uh, I ate uh, a lot of meat in the morning. And then for lunch, I had a barbecue. And then I told my wife, that's it. I'm never going to eat meat again. And she said, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. And ever since then, it's now seven years, I, I didn't eat meat. And then I started really, really thinking about once, once it was detached from me, once I was able to, to look at it without participating, uh, I could ask myself, what is it that I'm eating? What is the meaning of eating meat? What is the meaning for this planet of, of consuming meat? And why are we so obsessed and, and in love with meat, even though we know all of the difficulties of eating meat? And it's clear because I can tell you, and as I told you how emotional it is and how I miss eating meat, and it's very hard to, to make people change their habits. Fortunately, it happened to me, and now almost everything that I do and I live for is to find a way not to make people not eat meat, but to recreate this experience for me and for others without all of the bad implications of growing a cow, polluting the planet, slaughtering the cow and eating it. Yeah. <laughs> when you put it like that, no, I'm joking. But what was that adjustment actually like for you? Like, it seems like it was quite absolute. And I was just interested to hear if there were any challenges or kind of issues that you faced adjusting to this new meat-free life. A lot. So first, I'm, I'm much less happy. I have much less fun in life. Uh, and I have much less friends. Uh, not joking, a lot of my, my interactions with friends, even with family, were always around the fact that there was always a grill and steaks. And even with my father and my grandfather, we would meet almost every week, fire up a barbecue and cook the same meal, the same meal for years that I, I really miss. And so I can, I can meet with them. And I tried convincing my grandfather to try and grill tofu, but he didn't really feel that it's a good replacement for it. 800 gram ribeye steak. But besides that, it was very easy because I, I still have cooking. I still have a lot of things to cook. There's a lot of creative, exciting culinary styles and experiences that you might have. But for example, for my birthday, I always found the best steak possible. And now it's something that I didn't do for seven years. But, but I feel that the main, main thing that led me also to, to this journey of redefining meat is trying to really understand if I can replace the, the love of meat and, and to find something that is culinary so exciting? And the answer was no. And then I started to look for meat alternatives, way to replicate meat, and were, was totally disappointed by every experience, in that, experience that I have. And then trying to research and understand if I can contribute anything to make meat alternatives better than they were. Could you talk us through those kind of first steps of inspiration that helped you kind of create this concept of redefined meat? One of the main things we knew in the beginning and we know today, and especially because I'm not a technologist and my other co-founder is not a te technologist as well, is that we need to start asking questions. Uh, we didn't have answers, but we asked ourselves, what is it in meat that make it so special, so big, so, so exciting of an industry? even though that most consumers are aware of the implications. Uh, and there is a lot of um, long answers, but the simple answer, uh, answer to this question is the steak. 
if you look what makes meat so unique is, is this big chunk of muscle that we carve out of a cow and, and we grill, very simple, and we enjoy it so much. And we started to try and understand, we have some understanding and a lot of things to learn, of what in the composition of the steak make it so unique. And if you look at the market today for plant-based meat and how it evolved, it was always around the hamburger. Because the hamburger is quite simple, it's something that is mixed together. So trying to recreate that from plants makes a lot of sense, easy. If you look at the steak and you think about how to recreate it from plants, there is no logic. There's so many things to understand about the steak, how the fibers are formed, how the flavor is created, how juiciness is delivered to your palate, and many, many other elements that there is no existing technology that can stand the chance to compete with, with a stake. But because we're not technologists, we said if we will define very clearly what we need to do and find the right people and find the right projects and technology, we can start one by one recreating those experiences, those parameters, and to combine them together. And this is what we did. This is what we're doing now. And we have now products that we can eat and people can eat and can show that we are in the right direction, not only to create amazing hamburgers, amazing kebabs, but also amazing steaks that do not come from animals at a large scale, which is very, very unique from the market that existed four years ago and still very unique in the market that exists today. And I guess using technology to create meat is definitely like it's a it's a statement in a sense so I was really curious to hear a bit more about was there a lot of trial and error do you remember any of the first things you had to taste that came from the printing process like what was that all like we decided from day one that everything that we make everything that we mix and especially everything that we print we have to eat Uh, and we knew and we know now that if you don't taste what you're doing if it's not a part of, of a food experience it's meaningless. So of course, the first experiments and even the first year was a lot of, of things that weren't so tasty. I remember uh, about six months after we started the company, I had a birthday and I brought a big chunk of meat to my home uh, to grill. And my father told me, really, this is your steak? Are you sure? Are you sure this is what you want to do? Uh, and then going to chefs, which we also did at a very early stage and, and telling them, don't judge this as a food product, but just look at the texture or just look at how moisture is released. While it wasn't close to meat, it didn't look like meat, it didn't perform like meat, it didn't have any fun elements of a food product, was very, very challenging, but led us to a much better clarity on what we need to do. I can also tell you that today when we have great food products in restaurants in Israel and outside of Israel and, and chefs make amazing dishes, Tasting the same product and again and again, and we all taste several times a day, is not so easy, even if it's a great product. Even if it's an ice cream company, by the fifth tasting of a day, you don't want to eat any ice cream. And imagine doing it five days a week, at least two tastings every day here in the company, at least. Oh my gosh. Okay. I guess this is the point where I want to ask, like, what is in Redefine Meat? Like, how do you kind of create those textures and all of those things? What do you use to, to produce it? When you look at meat, uh, it's a complex structure and has a lot of uh, attributes to it, but you can map them. And we map the texture, we map the flavor, we map the color, uh, cooking behavior, 
And we don't look at it as one. It's not the taste, it's not the flavor, it's not how our meat looks like. It's by actually having all of these parameters and having the right combination of them. So now let's, let's be a little bit technical. Uh, in meat, the composition of meat is comprised of what we call muscle, fat, and blood. So it's actually not a single product, but a combination of different bio-ingredients, you can call them. And we recreate those, the muscle and fat and blood, separately from plant-based ingredients. So, for example, the muscle in, in a cow has a lot of protein, and the protein is formed into fibers. We use other proteins, soy and pea, to create fibers that are aligned very close to, to the muscle of meat. But, of course, we need to add some beet for the color, some yeast extract for the flavor, some iron to give it the metallic feel, and a little bit of fat. Uh, then we look at fat, and fat in a cow is a tissue. It has a texture, it has a flavor. They are very different from the muscle. So we recreate the same textures, flavor, colors, even changes in cooking of animal fat using plant-based fats. Uh, so we take coconut, we take uh, other vegetable oils, we add some proteins to it, we add water, we add other yeast extract for flavors, and we create a different, almost a tissue uh, and we do the same for blood. We take uh, water, we take beetroot extract, we take flavors, we take some protein because also the blood has some proteins. And separately, they're not food products, they're ingredients, they're, they're uh, an ink for our process. And then we combine them together. So this muscle, fat, and blood needs to be combined. So a ribeye is combined on one way in a cow, a tenderloin is combined in another way, and a hamburger is everything mixed together. And we do the same. We look at the matrix of meat. So a flank steak that we, we sell now in Israel, in Europe, has a certain structure of the muscle, has a certain amount of blood in it, has a very low visible fat, but has a lot of fat inside. And we use additive manufacturing. Most people call it 3D printing. But actually 3D printing is a wrong term because we don't 3D print anything. We create a food product layer by layer, fiber by fiber, in an additive way that is also digital. So we take the muscle, the actual muscle uh, that we created from plants, and we align it into a fiber. And then we do it for the next fiber and the next fiber and the next fiber. And then we put the fat exactly where we want it to be between those fibers to create what is called marbling that impacts the juiciness. And we decide where the droplets of blood are going to be. So you have even more juiciness, deeper color, and a different way of behaving while cooking. And we can do it for a flank steak that we do today. We can do it for a tenderloin steak that we're working on and for many, many other cuts of meat. One of the advantage of this approach is that we have a lot of complexity in the process, but creating different cuts doesn't add more complexity because any way you do things layer by layer, any, any way you decide in every point what you want it to be. So creating a steak with more fat or less fat or more juiciness or less juiciness or deeper flavor or more tender with mild flavors is embedded in our technology and allows us to work on different cuts, but also to experiment a lot and to improve the products. In every batch that we make, we can improve the product, unlike traditional means of manufacturing, that once you have a good product, you have to do it again and again the same because otherwise it's inefficient. Yeah, that's so so interesting when you break it down like that. It makes so much sense. And and I want to hear a bit more about, I guess, the person you have in mind when you create Redefine Meat. Who would you say we are speaking to or targeting and 
And who did you have in mind when you started to develop it? If if it wasn't clear until now, there is one person and it's me. So a lot of the <laughs> a lot of the decisions and processes and products are designed to my to my let's say dreams. But actually, as a taster, I'm, I'm irrelevant. They don't let me participate in the real tests uh, because in the real tests, n- not sensory tests of do you like it or not, because then I'm also important. But but technical tasting, you need somebody who eats meat, and and actually this is who we're targeting. If you look at the vegan and vegetarians like myself, we don't eat meat. Uh, and convincing us to eat better and better alternatives to meat might be nice, but it's a small market and it doesn't contribute anything to this planet because I'm, I'm not eating a steak now. Uh, so convincing me to eat a steak instead of having a falafel doesn't contribute to this planet. People who eat meat today uh, are the majority of the human population. Uh, so there are billions of them. And within them, a large population in some countries, 50%, want to reduce the amount of meat that they're eating. But out of convenience, out of habits, out of the fact that it's so tasty, find it hard to eat less meat. And by identifying what those people enjoy about meat, we can convince them to eat little less of old meat and more new meat. Uh, and also within those kind of population, you need to focus on people that like to experiment with new food products that are open to new things because my father and my grandfather would be happy to eat less meat, but they have been eating my father for over 90 years, great meat and trying to crack their likings is much more difficult than to go to younger people that uh, their, their habits around food and, and what they're eating, what they're cooking to themselves, what they're eating out of home is still evolving and delivering them an excellent product uh, that they really like, but they understand it can improve. So we also need the people that can participate in giving us feedback and can think with us what's needed to improve and not people like my grandfather and, and father that will say, I like it or I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, that's my dad too. And in terms of that complex process, I guess I'm interested to hear the flip side, which is obviously about the sustainability of that process alongside the sustainability of, you know, eating a product that is not, like, that doesn't come from an animal. How does Redefine Meat compare in terms of sustainability, costs, all of those kind of logistical things? Our technology is new, the company is new. A lot of the things that we do, we don't do the right way, the most optimized way. So we have much more waste than we would want. And we use much more water and much more ingredients and and have more electricity in the process than what we want. But we compare ourselves every day and, and from day one to the equivalent in an animal, in our case, beef. And because the the numbers in the beef industry, in beef growing, especially the industrial way of growing beef, are so dramatic in terms of water consumption, CO2 emissions, uh, land use, uh, and and the lack of efficient feed-to-food conversion, that our impact today is already dramatic. There is one chain of uh, restaurants in Germany that replaced beef redefine meat and it's something we can measure we can measure in, in that case what is the saving so 95% less land use 95% less uh, water use 99% less co2 emissions 
And this is where we are not doing a good job. So imagine improving everything that we do, becoming more sustainable, more efficient. What is the impact that we can deliver? And certainly the more people who, who eat meat that will eat redefined meat, uh, we will be able to measure the direct contribution to this planet. And this is something that is incredible because uh, people will eat redefined meat if it's tasty. That's the number one element. And if it will be tasty, uh, people want to eat it again and again and we'll have a growing business. By doing that, we will have a positive impact on the planet. Uh, so people will enjoy it, the planet will enjoy it, animals will enjoy it, and it will be a good business. So I'm, you know, it's, it's a very, very compelling proposition for us and, and for a business and for investors as well. So it's great. And then I guess on a, on like a micro level, we obviously talked about your own struggles with or your adjustment to like a new eating style. And I think it, de- it definitely takes like a determined mind, I would say, to kind of stick to something like that, especially given like your passion for, for meat. How, how do you think we can take that personal step to shift our meat eating culture at home? I think it's almost impossible, and and my example is is the best one for that because uh, I had a lot of understanding about the connection between meat to animals. I, I grew around the animals that I used to eat, uh, and it was never hidden to me, and I was never unaware to the implications. And I still ate meat, uh, and I had to go through a dramatic life change uh, that that made me stop eating meat. And I don't think it will happen to most people. And I think we should let go of feeling bad for eating meat and to embrace the fact that we just need to try more and more new meat products or alternative meat products and not judging them by how they are, but really try to think if this is on the path to be something great and not to make it so binary. I ate the product, I hate it, I ate the product, I love it, like my my grandfather and father and your father, but try to see what is our responsibility as consumers to drive this change the hope of converting everybody to become vegan uh, is not something we can count on, but we can count on consumer involvement in developing food products, which is something that every food company does, but not to the extent that this new industry does, not to the extent that new companies developing new technology for new f- food product need to involve people every day in every decision making. And they need to involve the people that are the most anti So the most diehard carnivores that don't care about the environment, because if we reach them, we reach everybody else. And what are your hopes for the future of alternative meat or new meat eating in general? I really hope that uh, an ecosystem will emerge with a lot of products and a lot of companies that are focusing on tasty experience, doing something that is sustainable and healthy and that people enjoy eating. And it cannot be one product, it cannot be one category, it needs to happen across every meat category, every animal protein category you can imagine. And and building a community that starts from the farmers all the way to the chefs and the home cooks that is involved in making this in reality. Because it's very difficult when this industry doesn't exist to imagine how it can happen. And you need a lot of visionaries, a lot of risk takers, a lot of people that today will start planting the fields that we will use five years from now, even though our technology is still young and the company is still small. And we need uh, companies, people, governments to imagine how the world will look like uh, 10 years from now and what does the alternative protein industry looks like and start actually working on it now, 
not as a single company, not as startups, but as a community and countries, and, and to lead this to the direction that we want it to, to shape. Because uh, I told you I have I have uh, I had one son and I stopped eating meat. Now I have three, and I'm really concerned about the future of this planet for them, not for me. For me, it's it's probably uh, too late. But for them, there is still hope. But the actions that will be taken in the next decade are the most dramatic. This is the most dramatic opportunity, and it cannot be just counting on redefining meat or counting on one steak. Uh, there, there needs to be much more than that. And we cannot do it alone, even though we're, we're very fast and very aggressive and we're very bold. We need help. Incredible. Thank you so much. Thank you, Natty. This Super Futures podcast series is part of Selfridges' exploration into possible futures, where we'll be trying on new lifestyles and ideas with our brands, future generations, and of course, you. Tune in each week as we speak to people who are tackling some of our greatest challenges in the most imaginative and innovative ways to make the world a better place for everyone. Head to selfridges.com for more enriching stories as we imagine what the future could be. This is a Radio Wolfgang production and featured Eshkhal ben Shitrit. The producers were Cass Denton and Ivor Manley. The executive producer was Ellie DiMartino. Martino.